So this morning we continue on our seven city tour of the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So this morning we're on our third city. We've looked at Ephesus, we've looked at Smyrna, and this morning it's the, I'm sure, unknown city of Pergamum right at the top there in the, in the brighter yellow. One of the things I'm trying to do from Sunday to Sunday is to kind of help us identify with the particular church, and, and back to sort of what Mark was saying a little bit, how we see ourselves, and, and what is what is the Lord saying to that church, and what does that then spin off and, and say to us? And to do that, I think it's important for us to understand the situation. What's, what's the background? Um, for example, Pergamum, archaeologists and historians would estimate it was about 100,000 100, people. Now, you Never heard of it. 100,000 people is a significant city 2,000 years ago. We talked about the city of Ephesus just down below. That was probably in the 200 to 250 range, sort of the Saskatoon Regina side. What was it like to live in those cities? Um, let's talk of it in terms of population density. Uh, people per acre. People per acre. Uh, Manhattan. Most of you have a picture of Manhattan Island, and whether that's from the World Trade Center or whatever, but Manhattan Island, the population density of Manhattan Island is 150, uh, sorry, 110 persons per acre. So you think of Manhattan Island and the, the apartment blocks and the sky rises, how many stories high? So about 110 people per acre. That's sort of Manhattan. Let's go to across the world to the city of India, Mumbai. Most of you, if you haven't seen pictures of Mumbai, probably have a picture of it in your mind. Uh, the population density of Mumbai is probably 180 people per acre. That's the estimate. So New York City, Manhattan Island, 110 people per acre. I don't know what it would be for us, man. I have no idea. Four? <laughs> By the time we get, you know, uh, spread out the way we are. So Manhattan, 110 people per acre. Mumbai, 180 people per acre. Estimates are that in Rome, in the first century, it was 300 people per acre. So if you think Mumbai is, is, a, is a congested city, if you know anything about Mumbai or any of the big cities in India, only 180. Rome was probably 300 people per acre. And a city like Pergamum, with about 100, 100 to 150,000 people, probably had... 150 persons per acre. Well, that's still 40 persons per acre more than New York. Thicker, denser, and so on. So what was it like to live in a city like that? Here's, here's one, and maybe you might want to close your eyes. If that tempts you to fall asleep, I can live with that. But just to kind of picture in your mind, sort of, and, and with the senses and, and the way the author describes this, get a feel for what it's like to live in a city in the first century. Entire families were herded together in tiny, cramped cubicles with paper-thin walls. Now, what they were in was, was what we would call tenement building. Uh, the technical term is insulae, about four or five-story apartment buildings, okay? Um, kind of like the hotel that I stay at when I'm doing overnights here in Estevan down at the Western Star. Four stories. But entire families were herded together in tiny, cramped cubicles with paper-thin walls. Were it not for the drafty open windows, they would have succumbed to the poisonous smoke from the inadequate cooking and heating braziers. Admitting minimal light, at least the windows helped remove the stench of the ubiquitous chamber pot 
soon to be emptied on the street below. And don't forget about the people walking on the street below when the pot is empty. These drafts from the windows were great, but they also increased the risk of fire, which was feared alike by rich and poor. Everyday, house, everyday housing was cramped, dark, often smoky and unsafe, always dirty, and permeated with the stench of sweat, waste, and decay. As the dust, dirt, and rubbish accumulated, the bugs ran riot. Outside your place of living was not much better. Filled with refuse of every imaginable kind, the average street was about mud, open sewers, manure, human waste, and even the occasional body shoved outdoors and abandoned, all nicely stewing in the blazing Mediterranean sun. No wonder the wealthy loved incense. Cities for the vast majority were pest holes of disease marked by chronic health conditions, swollen eyes, and skin rashes. And the average age, right, the life expectancy in the first century, uh, the last I remember looking, I think for women, it was about 38 years old, and for men, it was about 45, somewhere in there. As night descended, people fled to their homes to barricade themselves in. There's not much to barricade, right? Because you don't have windows on your windows. In the dark, the criminal rain. To go out without having made one's will was an act of folly. Even if everyone spoke Greek as a second language, ethnic identities and mutual suspicion remained firmly in place. And though people were often walled into ethnic quarters, so they were divided ethnically in, in, in places in the city, riots were frequent and often murderous. So you got all that inside, outside, in the state of the city, and then we haven't even talked about the threat of floods, earthquakes, and famine. Life was tough. Just life in general was tough. Very different from what we can imagine. And we come to the city of Pergamum, and Pergamum is, is a very important city in the, in the Roman Empire. Um, if we can go to the next slide. So here's, here's the tour. We've been to Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum, about 100,000 people. Uh, these three cities, Pergamum, Smyrna, and Ephesus, kind of fought for supremacy in the Roman Empire. They wanted to be the emperor's favorite city. There, there was actually an award, um, MVC, Most Valuable City. That's not what they called it. That's what we would call it. There's a Latin word for it, but I'm not going to throw that at you. So there's this Most Valuable City contest, and, and Smyrna and Ephesus and Pergamum all tried to be the most important city for the emperor. Actually, Pergamum came out on top. They won the award more than the other cities did. They were, it was a very important city. And one of the reasons was because of the way it was set up. We go to the next slide, you get a bit of a geography of the city. So the city is down below, and there's this mountain in the middle of the city, and the city's around it. And there's uh, one of the temples to one of the emperors. There's a theater. There's an altar to Zeus. There's a temple to Dionysius. Uh, Pergamum was a very important political and religious center. Uh, people would travel there. People would go there on pilgrimages. But it was very, and so in the center of the city and up on this hill, you go to the next slide, you get a different perspective. So you see the city, the modern city wrapped around the ruins uh, of the altar to Zeus. Next slide. Uh, this is what they think it looked like. This is a, a reconstruction in a Berlin museum uh, of the altar to Zeus. And that's only one of the things on the top of the hill. Next slide, Travis. This is Trajan's temple, one of the, um, one of the temples to the emperor because emperor worship was was a key thing um, 
especially at the end of the first century, the, the Roman Empire had established itself. And interestingly, this, the temple in Pergamum is one of the few emperor temples that actually had the emperor's name on it. Uh, so there's some honor there that goes along with the city and the significance of the city. And then down in the bottom corner is a, a reconstruction of what it looks like. It looked like back in the day. Uh, the next slide. So up on the up on the hill again, you see, you see the hill. There's this theater, uh, seated 10,000 people. Next slide, Travis. So there, there's another view of the theater, 10,000 people. But this, if you've ever sat in the nosebleed section, go to the next slide. This is what it looked like at the top. <laughs> Reminds me of sitting in the um, nosebleed section at Soldier Field when my son and I went to watch the Bears game back in 2006. I mean, I. I I sure don't like the pitch. <laughs> I don't know that I want to be walking down uh, that to the bottom. But it gives you a bit of an idea of the scope and the scale and the size of it. But So the landscape was very significant for the city of Pergamum. And so as the city was around it at the bottom, here's this, everywhere you, everywhere you went, you'd see the hill. And up on the hill were the, these temples and these sanctuaries and these representations of the things that to the city of Pergamum and to the Roman Empire uh, really mattered. So let's go to look at the letter to the city at Pergamum. Page 1138, if you're working from the Bibles uh, that are found in your pew, page 1138. If not, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and the letter to the church in Pergamum, verse 12. So I hope... This gives you a, a better sense of sort of the background and the situation and what Jesus has to say to the Christians. So in the city of about 100,000 at the end of the first century, you're probably looking at maybe three or four house churches scattered around the city. Um, house church being about 30 to 40 people. And this letter would be circulated to those churches in, in Pergamon. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. So this is Jesus saying to John and to the angel, this is the letter to be delivered. These are the words who has of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And this goes back to chapter 1, the vision of Jesus. The vision that John saw of Jesus and the various aspects that John tried to describe of the indescribable picture of, of Jesus the Lord, Jesus the Savior. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. It's kind of the idea of um, authority. The idea of Jesus being the one with the double-edged sword, it's the idea of authority. It's the idea of justice. It's the idea of what Jesus says matters, because if we're familiar with the rest of Scripture, we know that the Word of God is like a double-edged sword. So there's this idea of what Jesus says matters. What Jesus says is important. What Jesus says will come true, which becomes very important in the next part of this letter. Verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And it's probably referring to that whole upper echelon on the top of that hill in the middle of the city. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. And then the way the the translators have worked it out. If we take out that middle part that talks about 
where Satan has his throne, you remain true, Antipas dying. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan lives. So this is, this is the part of the letter. Not every church has a, part of, uh, a commendation part of the letter, but, but Pergamum does. Um, if life was tough in general, life was even tougher for the Christians in Pergamum. Uh, it's described as the place where Satan lives. It's the place where Satan has his throne. Um, life was tough enough. We might think and often have heard about the glories of Rome. One person has described life in the Roman Empire in this way. The crushing poverty of the masses, urban disorder, and cultural chaos. And again, that's where they lived just day to day. Now, it was also the place where Satan lived. You live where Satan lives. And what's the result? Well, they're doing fine. You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even when one of your own people died, was martyred for their faith in your city. You remain true to my name. They held fast. They remained tr faithful in the face of significant pressure and significant... And it's not hard to see and get a sense of the pressure and the influence because everywhere you look when you lived in the city of Pergamum, here's that hill. You just can't miss it. It just permeates everything. And they remain faithful and they remain true in spite of the pressure and in spite of the influence. You see, the way it worked in the first century was either Caesar is Lord or you're a traitor. That's basically it. Caesar is Lord, and the, and the Roman empires would take on names like Savior, uh, Lord. Some even describe themselves as God. So, so either Caesar is Lord, or you're a traitor to the empire. That's kind of how it worked. On the Christian side, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. And there's a price to pay. I think there's a lesson there for us in terms of the culture in which they found themselves. And, and I think the, the geography, the, the structure of the city, here, here's this mountain, this hill with all these buildings and these uh, temples and stuff on top of it. And it just influences everything. All, all the air that the city of Pergamum breathes revolves around that hill, right? And everything in it, their significance and everything. And, and their status in the Roman Empire and, and how the Roman Emperor feels about them is all dependent on that hill that is, is the center of life for them. And if the Emperor is giving them thumbs up, great. At least they'll get some help. Life is tough enough without How can you not be influenced by it? How can you not be influenced by all that? And, and in the day-to-day -day stuff, we've talked about it, right? That if whatever your trade is, whatever your your um, your skill was as a craftsperson, your artisan, whatever, I mean, everything revolves around the god of that guild or the god of that trade or the god of that crop, right? Um, one of the one of the Roman gods, Asclepius, is the god of health and healing. Uh, there was temples for Asclepius. Uh, so, and, and this is your political and religious center 
for, for the province of Asia. We know it as Turkey, it's the province of Asia back then. So that's their hub, that's, that's their center, that's, that makes everything run. And so these Christians, what was their hub? For these Christians who were able to resist, who were able to stand strong in the midst of the pressures, how, how did, even in the pressure of, of martyrdom and losing their life, uh, how did they do that? Well, they had a hub. They had a hub. They had a center. Revelation chapter 1, the vision of Jesus. In fact, the book of Revelation, you could say the hub is Revelation chapter 1 with the vision of Jesus and Revelation 4 and 5, the vision of Jesus on the throne, in the throne room of God. You've got, you've got the picture of Jesus in chapter 1 and the picture in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 about all that's going on around the throne of God. And that's the hub. In fact, that's the hub for the book of Revelation. We sometimes get so caught up in some of the details. Actually, I think some of the easiest part of Revelation to understand is Revelation 4 and 5, with what's going on around the throne of God. And that's the hub. That's the center. That's what holds it together. And that's what holds the followers of Jesus together. The Roman culture was the air they breathed. Well, and what about the air we breathe? What should we talk about? Materialism, consumerism, individualism, that's the air we breathe. Um, we don't make temples to Zeus, or we don't uh, build uh, temples to uh, totalitarian leaders. We worship other idols, money, sex, and power, health, security, and choice, right? We have our own idols of choice. The hub for the followers of Jesus is Jesus. So there's the commendation. And they, you've got to look at that. And knowing the situation, say, wow, they did really well because they focused on Jesus. How did they not lose their focus? How did they not lose their focus with all that going on? And they're commended for it. Verse 14. Now here comes the challenge. Here comes the corrective word from Jesus. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So there's the sword again, right? There's, there's the sword in terms of the active word of God, penetrating, purifying, cleansing, and that connects with the vision of Jesus. So, Interesting. Externally, they did well, right? In the midst of this uh, culture so anti-God, in the midst of this culture so anti... See, our culture is anti-faith. Their culture was anti-Jesus or anti-God. Our, our, our culture, right, is anti-faith. It's just that everything that's going to get solved is going to get solved at the human level. We're not fighting a culture that's anti-Jesus. We're fighting a culture that's anti-transcendent, anti-supernatural. 
anti, I can make it on my own, I don't need any other help. So externally, they were able to, to overcome that pressure to cave into a culture that said, Caesar is Lord. But internally, right, they had some problems. Somehow internally, some false teachers had crept in to the church. Those who hold the teachings of Balaam, uh, Balaam from the Old Testament, the story of the people of Israel, Numbers chapter 22. And Balaam is an outsider. Balaam is not an Israelite. Balaam is an, is an outsider. So this outsider came into the church, it seems, and somehow, some, we're not exactly sure, nobody's quite sure what the teachings are that they taught, but it resulted in uh, eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. So there's an internal false teacher. And then there's, as we've heard of these before, verse 15, there's these Nicolaitans that were in Ephesus. Likewise, you have also hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And as we said when we looked at that in chapter two, earlier in chapter 2, that we're not quite sure what they taught, but it was a false teaching, a heresy of some kind. So two internal problems. As good as they were at withstanding the pressure from the outside, They had false teachers in their midst, and they needed to correct that. Interesting, if you compare with the letter to the church at Ephesus, the letter to the church at Ephesus, the Ephesian church was intolerant. They, they, they would have nothing to do with these, and they're, they're, they're acknowledged that they have nothing, they have zero tolerance for false teaching. But don't get too excited about the Ephesian church, because as we said, the church in Ephesus is also going to lose the lampstand, because they left their first love. There's that, right? There's that tension in this. The church in Ephesus has zero tolerance. The church in Pergamum has too much tolerance. The church in Ephesus is cold and black and white, and this is the way it is. The church in Pergamum is a little too open there. The challenge is that they won't have their lampstand removed, which is what was told to the church at Ephesus. They are told to repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them. I, I think that's pretty important. When Jesus comes, and he's going to make things right with the church in Pergamum, he's going to fight against them, against the false teachers, and those who follow the teachings of the false teachers. I think that's pretty important. He's not just tackling the whole church. He's going to be precise in his correctness. And if they don't repent, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them. And so the call is to repent. Every, every letter has a call to repent. It's sort of the, sorry, not every letter, five out of the seven letters are this call to repent. There's a correction that's needed. Is there a lesson here for us? No. Five out of seven churches are called to repent. Is there a possibility that there is something we might be called to repent about? Well, no, no, I'm not even playing the odds then. Five out of seven leaves us a little wiggle room. I prefer First John chapter 1, verse 8, where John says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If Pergamum needs to repent... As good as they were at withstanding the, the temptations of the, the situation in which they lived and the city of Pergamum needs to repent, and who doesn't? 
Intense is a tough thing to talk about. For a couple of reasons. One is, repentance here is about church repentance. The church is to repent. It's not, not individual repentance. It's about the, the church that needs to repent. I don't even know that we have an idea what that looks like. What is a church repentance? We're so used to individual repentance. We're so used to personal repentance. Even as far as personal repentance goes, at the beginning of the church, it was repentance was always public. We saw a little bit of that this morning in what Mark shared about the challenges that he's been facing and, and what he's been wrestling with with God. Repentance was public. And then it went repentance in the, in the cycle of church history. Repentance was talking to a spiritual leader one-on-one. And now I think repentance for all of us is pretty much just personal. And it's us talking to him. This, this is, the understanding is repentance is public. And not just public sin requires public repentance. But I think that that's how the church functions. I think we've overpersonalized it. And it's easy for me to forget that my sin affects you. And your sin affects your pastor. I don't know when I first discovered it, but I, I often go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul says, Who is led into sin that I do not burn? It's just the burden a pastor carries in a, in, a past, in a church. Who is led into sin that I do not? And I don't think that's a burn in terms of anger. I think that's just something that, that grabs, something that just sticks with you. My sin affects you. Your sin affects your pastor, and our sin affects those around us. I think if we understand sin better, we might be better able to deal with repentance. And then, if we worry about the church losing authority in society, and there's no question it has, right? The church has lost authority in society. We're not the center of society. Uh, we're not the tallest building in the town anymore, as we used to be. So I think most of us recognize that in North America, as in Europe, the church has lost its authority. So as the church has lost its respect and authority in society, I wonder if we've brought that into the church, because then the question is, who's going to correct me? Who's going to correct you? You know, we might say, oh, I don't hear sermons on sin anymore. We don't hear about church discipline anymore. And, yeah. There's a number of reasons for that and a lot of angles to come at that from. But who, who's going to hold me accountable? Who's going to hold you accountable? Who, who's going to correct me? I shouldn't say that. I know who's going to correct me. Every time I preach a sermon that's kind of like this on accountability, I usually get someone that will come and tell me what I did wrong. Kind of the way it works. But if we're all on the same level and we're all sitting in the same pews, who's going to correct you today? If, if we're a little out of line, if, if we say something that's just a little off color, who's, who's going to correct What if they try to correct us? What, what's our response? Are we more worldly than we think we are? We're going to talk more on repentance in the, in the 
couple of Sundays to come because it continues to come up um, in the letters that are written. But just to think about that. I don't think any of us would disagree. We're all a mixture of faith and foolishness. We're a mixture of worship, witness, and wandering. Come thou found of every blessing, that old hymn. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And it goes back to what Mark is on a little bit. You know, did I move or did God move, right? And why the feeling of the distance and the gap? And, and how, do I, how do I move into that? We're a mixture of commitment and compromise. Depends. Last time we talked about it was with the church at Ephesus, and it was a Sunday we sang the song Whiter Than Snow. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow, and some of you knew it, some of you didn't, but one of the questions I had, and I didn't say it at the time, but what would you, and we've got it now, we got a good contrast outside, what would you rather be, new snow or old snow? Right now it's old snow. What would you rather be? Old snow or new snow? Because the, prom- the promise is there, right? Verse 17, whoever has the ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to those who are victorious. To those who overcome, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give each of them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So there's the promise. There's the hope. There's, there's the kind of Savior we serve. There, there is this hidden manna. Again, not quite sure what it means. The, the, the commentators, everybody's got some slightly different views, but it probably goes back to the Old Testament manna, the idea that God will sustain us, the idea that God will supply our needs according to his riches, in Christ Jesus, and then that again speaks to my idolatry, right, of materialism and consumerism and the things I think I need and I, I, I want to have. Then there's the promise of a white stone. And again, they're not quite sure this white stone, some thought it was like a ticket to get into the theater kind of thing. It, it was um, something you would hand in to, to go in and see something or hear someone. Uh, some think it's kind of an initiation thing when you, when you joined a uh, a guild or a trade, you would get a white stone. So there is that aspect to it, right? It, it's your identity. It's who you are, and there's your name on it. But for me, all this comes back to verse 14. or Sorry, verse 13. Verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you live. I know where you live. Now, if if a criminal said that to you, if you get one of these scam calls about your CRA account or your social insurance number, and they the part of their line is, I know where you live, which is just a little less than I know your PIN number, not much, but a little less, right? That's not a good feeling. If uh, a criminal says to you, I know where you live, or or let's say you went to help somebody and, and the person that was kind of bullying them or said, I know where you live, it's not a good thing. But when Jesus says, I know where you live, it's a good thing. 
Because the whole setting here is Jesus understand. I know where you live, where Satan lives in their case. I know where you live. It's not bad news that Jesus knows where we live. It's good news. It's not bad news that Jesus knows everything that's going on in our lives. It's good news because of who he is, not because of who we are. Jesus understands. That's the kind of advocate. That's the kind of intercessor. That's the kind of mediator we have in Jesus. So maybe we even need to go back a bit. So when Jesus says to you, I know where you live, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Jesus says, I know, I know your workplace. I know your neighbors. I know your family. I know where you live. I know what life is like for you. And I know I also know what you're like in that life. I hope it's good news for you because that takes us back to the picture of Jesus in chapter one. Go back to Revelation chapter one, verse seventeen. After John sees this incredible vision of Jesus, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. This overwhelming picture just drops him on the spot. Jesus placed his right hand on John and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. Is that the vision we have of Jesus? Is that the picture we have of Jesus? Is that our idea of Jesus? Especially when he tells us, hey, I know where you live. I know where you work. I know everything that's going on in your life. Not a picture. That's that's the vision. That, that's the that's the hub, right? That's the hub I said for Book of Revelation. And then what happens in Revelation four and five in, in the response to who Jesus is and the the grandeur and the greatness and the majesty and the power and the authority. Is that our picture? Is that our vision of who Jesus is? It's, it's the, well, as the worship team comes, we're going to sing, Be Thou My Vision. That's the picture. That's that's the focus. That's the hub. Does it, put everything in, does it solve everything? No. Does it put everything in perspective? I think yes. Jesus says, I know where you live. And that is good news.